listening to First Church Charlotte. final lesson of a series I wanted to do this year called Rebuild. And the, the, goal of the, the goal of the series, as far as from my perspective as a pastor, was to challenge all of us to make um, strong commitments, consecrations to the Lord, not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And I wanted to challenge specifically all of us uh, from the platform to uh, next door, (laughs) all of us, I wanted to challenge us to make sure that we are people of consecration, people of commitment. We're not just quote-unquote churchgoers, uh, or we're not just kind of label cultural Christians. Uh, We are actively seeking to know the Lord, to be changed by His Word and power, and to make a difference in our our the world in which He has He has placed us. So, uh, with that as my goal, I begin to look for a way to say it where people uh, could carry it with them. As a communicator, I always want to put handles on my theological luggage. I want to make it where you can carry it. Uh, it's not something that you heard one and maybe understood, and that's the end of it, Uh, but all of the, shall we say, the teaching, the wisdom, if there is such, uh, it has handles on it. You can take it with you. Uh, and so I, I came across uh, the story of the patriarchs not just building altars, but rebuilding altars. And in that moment, I knew what I wanted to say because so much of serving God feels like the building and the rebuilding of altars in our life. Yes. Um, none of us reach a moment where our altars build themselves. We all of us are continually building and rebuilding the altars in our life. This is shown to us in the story of the patriarchs, where you see them every time they come back to the land where God has placed them. They rebuild the altar to the Lord. They may have made a mess of things in Egypt. They tended to do that. Uh, they may have erred and been uh, refugees from their own fear, uh, fleeing famines or strife or war. But when God sends them back to where he wants them to be, what's the first thing they do when they get back to where God wants them to be? They rebuild. They rebuild the altar of the Lord. Why do altars fall apart? We've talked about that over the last month. Uh, The altar just becomes a symbol. It's a teaching example. But even so, the lesson holds true. Uh, Any stones that are put together, fitted together, even mortared together, they fall apart because of the thermal cycle in nature. Uh, When it is cold, the material contracts. And when it's hot, the material expands. Uh, Most of the, the, shall we say, manner in which any material falls apart uh, is because of that thermal cycle. The reason why the seals in your car engine lose their ability to seal 
um, is because of the thermal cycle. They can only get hot and cold so many times, and they lose their ability to do their job. Uh, the reason why you, the, the very mechanics of our cars uh, uh, wear out is because of that. Um, sometimes it's direct, direct uh, wear, uh, that, like on tires and brakes, but for much of the mechanics of any piece of machinery, it's that thermal cycle. There's only so much. Alters, they get cold, they get hot. They get wet, they freeze, the ice expands, it breaks the mortars, the heat comes, and what happens? It falls apart. Just like after the ice storm, the roads are damaged, so it is with the altars that fall apart. It's the wear and tear of life. It is the hot, cold, thermal cycle. There is a lesson here for all believers if we uh, will receive it, and that is this. The normal experience of serving God has this, uh, if you'll allow me to use this as a teaching example, it has its own uh, hot, cold cycle. It has its own, uh, I'm uh, really fired up and prayed through, and Jesus, take the wheel. I am not doing very good. And and I'm prayed through, I'm where I need to be, and I shouldn't have went and saw that person because I knew what was going to happen, even though I pretended I didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, let me get down to some real-life stuff here, okay? And I'm prayed through right now because I just got back from the special meeting. They had my favorite preacher, praise God. My favorite worship band came through and had a concert, praise God, hallelujah, all's well. Times are good, but I then lost my job, and I cratered on the bottom, and my stress went through the roof, and I really wasn't, I didn't handle stress well in this particular time. There's been some times I handled stress well, but not this one. The thermal cycles, the hot, cold, hot, cold, prayed through, backslid, not backslid, backslid, just backslid. <laughs> don't pretend like we don't have this natural um, spiritual reality where we have to rebuild our altars unto the Lord. And so it's not just building, it is rebuilding. Uh, I found uh, three stories in the Bible where something was built and God wouldn't build it for them. The first story is the story that I've already referenced of the patriarchs. God will not build you an altar. I use the story of Elijah, and Elijah, what he uh, showed the people of Israel, he gathered their attention and he said, watch me, and uh, then he built the altar unto the Lord. He didn't get the altar built and then get their attention. They watched him from the middle of the day until the evening sacrifice, and uh, what was he doing? It wasn't, he wasn't praying. Prayer, his prayer only is about 70 words. That's about a minute and a half. And it wasn't fire falling from heaven that took time. What took the time? He made them watch him rebuild the altar. And we learned that uh, we reminded ourselves that God will not build our altars. God does not build altars for you. Now, he will put a lamb upon the altar. So the angel says to Abraham, don't touch the lad. I have provided a sacrifice. And God will let the Shekinah fire of heaven fall and consume that offering. But God will not build that altar for you. Amen. 
The second story we told was the story of David having it in his heart to build a house for the Lord. And he lived in a palace and the Lord dwelt in a tent. And the Lord, we read the scriptures together, the Lord was somewhat surprised as though saying, huh, I hadn't really thought about it. I don't really need a house. Uh, when it's cold outside, I don't really get cold. I am the cold. You remember that? And uh, when the storm comes, I don't need shelter from the storm. I am the storm. And um, so I, that's not really a problem for me. But huh, but since it's in your heart to do it, I'm going to receive and let you be a part of building a physical. You'll gather the materials. You'll save the money. Your son will uh, build it, not you, because what you build testifies of me. That's its own lesson. The life we build testifies of God, and God cares. about what we build in his name. But David does succeed in building a house for the Lord that would last forever. Remember, a physical house will not last forever. Um, It always is going to be at risk of destruction. Uh, But David builds a way of worship that we still celebrate today, a style of lifting our voices, a style of clapping our hands, a style of shouting unto God with a voice of triumph. That's all from the tabernacle of David, which is where the modern church gets its worship style. Last week was lesson one of first steps. I went over all the things that people can expect to see when they come to church, from clapping hands, raising their voice, praying for people, anointing with oil, even shouting. I talked about people in our church who shout. I want them to know in the first lesson everything that's going to happen. I don't try to sneak and hope they'll stay long enough to like us before we scare them. I tell them in the first lesson of first steps, we do this not because we're crazy. We may be crazy, but that's a different problem. We do this because this is the tabernacle of David. We walk in the church and we say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We look at one another and we say, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Where did that come from? David. David built a house of worship that could never be destroyed. That's the modern style of worship. The Lord resurrected the tabernacle of David as a worship style. Now, David, it was in his heart. God will not be his own worship. He's given us an opportunity to build a house of worship. So I choose, in the same manner God will not build me an altar, God will not build a culture of worship in my heart. Like David, if I don't want to do it, I won't do it. It has to be something I desire. I want to worship God. I want to bless the Lord. You see, if you don't have that as a way of being, the first trouble that comes, you'll quit worshiping and you'll start sucking your thumb. You'll start feeling fearful. You'll start sitting up at night and you'll lose your worship because you aren't building a life of worship as a choice. So much about serving God is about building altars and building a house of worship for the Lord. You live in this house I have built for you, Lord Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you the third story because we're wrapping this series up. And the third story is the story of uh, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has a desire in his heart to build again 
the walls of Jerusalem to rehang the gates and ultimately to build again the tabernacle of the Lord that has been destroyed uh, by the Babylonian Empire. It's in his heart to do it. Now, I want to point out something here. Uh, Nehemiah did not need a job. Nehemiah had a great job. Nehemiah was in the house of the king. He was in one of the most trusted positions you could be in. He does not need a job. He's not a rescue dog. And if you pay my bill, then I will serve you. He is already blessed, but it's in his heart to build the kingdom of God. He's already doing good. He doesn't need his light bill paid. He's doing good. He's already in an elevated position. He's already been blessed and highly favored, but it's in his heart. Somebody say, in his heart. It's in his heart to build the kingdom, the house, the city of God. And he begins to be moved with his own uh, type of intercessory, his own desire to do something to build the house of the Lord. And it so moves him that it gets the attention of the king he serves. And when the king asks him, he says, look, I'm doing good. I know I'm in a trusted position. I get it. Things are well, but I want to do something for God. So three lessons in three stories. None of these are building projects that God will build. I want to say that again. None of these are building projects that God will build. God will not build you an altar. God will not create an atmosphere of worship in your life, and God will not do a work he has ordained for us to do without using us to do it. If it's not in your heart to build an altar, you won't have an altar. If it's not in your heart to be a worshiper, you won't have an atmosphere of worship in your life. And God will not force you to be a part of his kingdom. You can be a part of a long line of Christians who really care about themselves being saved and their kids being saved and blessed and the rest of the world can go to H-E double hockey sticks. This is not the call that expresses the heart of God. You have to see there is a purpose for which Jesus died, and he has given you an opportunity to care about the city of the Lord, to care about the call of God, to care about blessing the kingdom of God. Three stories, three lessons, all three of them depend on you wanting to do something for the Lord. You want to do something for his kingdom. You want to be involved in his call, in his work. And so the story with uh, Nehemiah, I want to tell you very quickly, is while he was rebuilding this, the, the walls of the city and rehanging the gates, the enemies who were not interested in the uh, children of Abraham coming back to Jerusalem, they tried to distract, they tried to hinder, and they ultimately ultimately planned an assassination attempt against um, Nehemiah. 
uh, Nehemiah was invited to a meeting at a city uh, on, the Bible tells us the story in the book of Nehemiah, uh, on the plains of Ono and the uh, uh, Geshem and uh, Samballot and uh, I think Tobiah was involved too. They invite Nehemiah to come to this meeting. They have an ambush plan, but Nehemiah is so focused upon his purpose that he is unwilling to be distracted to give the enemy an opportunity to kill him. Some of us are giving the enemy way too, too many opportunities in our lives. Come on now, come on. It would have been better for us not to even go to that meeting. And so he sends them back this message. And this is what I want to convey if the Lord will help me. He says this to them, I am involved in a great work. Chapter 3, read it yourself. I am involved in a great work so that I cannot come down to meet you. If you don't value the work that God has given you, who are you expecting to value it? If you don't value what you can do to make a difference in your world, who are you expecting to value it? The unbeliever? Do you expect sand ballot to value the call God has put upon your life? Do you expect Tobiah and Jeshem to value the intercessory opportunity, the divine call of prayer that God has put upon you? If you low rate it, if you low value it, how are you ever going to have the character to stick it out and remain committed. You're not even valuing it. This is Nehemiah. He has already decided that because God put this calling upon him, it is worth doing. He has already decided, you don't have to appreciate what God's called me to do. I'm going to appreciate it enough for the both of us. I am involved in a great work, and I don't have time for distractions. Three stories, three different insights. The first is an altar that you have to build. If you don't value your covenant with God, if you don't value disciplining the flesh and serving God, you won't have an altar in your life. And you will find that you, ha you struggle to have a consistent place of spiritual connection because you haven't done the work of building an altar. This is the challenge, and I may talk about this more in just a moment. This is the challenge of real spiritual warfare in the life of a believer. This is what it, it feels like. There are two different battles that are being fought and ultimately are we either fail or we succeed at. The first battle is the battle within. This is the battle between uh, the spiritual man and the carnal man or the spiritual woman and the carnal woman. This is a battle that you must win. If you do not win that battle, you will never have influence in the larger external battle that is between principalities and powers. You are still stuck trying to win the battle within. This is not the will of God for you. It is the will of God for you to be more than a conqueror. The first battle you win is in this reality of the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. Therefore, this carnal personality, this carnal way of being that's comfortable for me has to be taken to a place of spiritual death. And there, the old man is 
as it were, and this is a harsh image, but the Apostle Paul gives us this image. It is as though that individual is put to spiritual death that the spiritual potential that is within me might live. If I win that battle of flesh and spirit on the inside, now I'm ready to be more than a conqueror. If I just win that battle, I'm a conqueror, but in order to have an influence beyond this inner battle, I have to be more than a conqueror. When I win that spiritual battle, now I'm able to make a difference in the larger dilemmas, challenges, and warfare of principalities and power. It's a challenge for us to win that internal battle, but once we do, we are able to make a difference in the larger battle. Your world is depending on you to be more than a conqueror. Your unsaved friends, loved ones, and family are depending on you to do more than just barely make it. Your world needs you to care about more than you and yours. Your world needs you to, yes, you have an altar. Yes, you're a worshiper. And now you see that this city needs God. Now you see this place that I am in has spiritual mission to it. And I have three teaching examples in the Bible where there is something to be built that God will not build for me. And so we have to acknowledge that there is the project of work, the building effort that only God can do. That is our salvation. That is dealing with the old sins of yesterday. That is mercy. That is hope. That is grace. I can never have any influence there because I am far from a suitable lamb of spiritual covering. I am never going to be good enough. That's what God can do. But God having done what he can do and I cannot do, then in enables me to be transformed by what he has done, and then I am able to make a difference in a place he has spiritually and contextually invested me. It goes like this. God will create the heavens and the earth. God will spin the galaxies into the far reaches. God will even build an altar, or not, excuse me, God will build an Eden, not an altar. God will build an Eden on this place that he has prepared for me. But then he says to me, you tend the garden. Yes, I've made the heavens and the earth. Yes, I put an Eden here, but uh, you're going to tend it. That's why I preached last week that God's not particularly interested in your problems, but he's very interested in you. And God's not even particularly interested in fixing your problems. He's interested in fixing you. And if he can fix you and you be transformed, the most natural thing in the world will be for your life to demonstrate that all the stuff that used to be an oppression upon you is no longer an oppression upon you. And a life that once was a place of survival has now become a place of testimonies. And so it is very much true that serving God feels like the process of building and rebuilding altars choosing to be a worshiper 
and reminding myself that I am called to something bigger than me and my needs. I want to say that again. Serving God very much comes a continual feel like this. I build and rebuild altars of consecration to God. I continually choose to be a worshiper in everything. I give him thanks. And number three, I am always reminded that the city needs the work of God to be done in it. Do you see? Uh, this is an ongoing, continual process of renewal. Let me give you some scriptures here. I'm reading Romans 8, verse number 29. From the very beginning, God decided that those who came to him, and all along he knew who would, those who came to him should become like his son. What is the will of God from the very beginning? The people who come to him, who are drawn to him, who choose him, what happens to them? They don't stay the same. They become more and more like Jesus. Yes. Do you see? And uh, this is not all God's work. He has to make it possible. And we have to build altars. We have to make commitments. We have to choose to make him the highest ideal in our life. His way, not our way. That's the point of worship. Stop looking to yourself. Stop looking to your abilities. God's able to do exceedingly abundantly above. This is a life of worship. And lastly, you're not here by accident. You've been called. You've been empowered. You've been appointed. Make a difference in your city. This continual process is to be changed to be like Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter number 3, verse number 17. For the Lord is a spirit, and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the Lord who is the spirit makes us more and more, say it with me, more and more. Get, get your grandma finger out, turn to somebody sitting near you and point at him and say more and more, more and more. Tell him you best not quit. You ain't close. You got work to do, honey. More and more, more and more, more and more. We need to put a song into that. Oh, more and more. <laughs> we need more and more what to be changed into his glorious image, all right? What do we need more and more for this carnal hide to be changed into his image? More and more, it feels like building and, yes, rebuilding. Galatians 5, verse number 22. And when the Holy Spirit controls our life, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That sounds like a lot of work to me. I want to tell you the truth. I read that scripture and I'm exhausted just reading it. You know what that feels like to me? Rebuilding altars. I wish I had a happier a story to tell along. Maybe you could put on a Bob the Builder video and have that cheer you up. But honey, you are Bob the Builder. And you are going to build and rebuild and build and rebuild. God will make it possible. But he's not going to do your work. He's not going to do your work. And it feels like building and rebuilding and building and rebuilding. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's the reality. If all of us have this challenge of turning our heart on a regular day toward God, if all of us have every day the challenge of commitment, altar, worship, and finally, mission, consecration, 
worship, mission, if all of us have this challenge every day and we are going to pursue it sincerely, if we are going to take change seriously, now uh, uh, full disclosure, it is possible to go to church and not take change seriously. It is possible to turn church into a bit of a rut where you really are not striving. You much more are just kind of having a community place that's not all bad. There is very much benefit to be had to be joined with other believers. It was never God's intent for you to do life alone. He wants you connected in uh, the temple worship on Sundays like the early church, and he wants you connected during the week, house to house, breaking bread one another, spending time together. It is the church growing larger and the church growing smaller at the same time. This is the will of God. But some people can get in the habit of church as a lifestyle and stop a serious commitment to change. I want to give you this reminder. You build your altar, you choose worship, and you see the mission. And if you're not careful, you can get into a world where God does all the work. I'm saved, but I'm not really committed. I'm not really a worshiper. I'm a worrier. And I certainly am not worried about the calling and the gifts that God has given me. This is a rep, this is representative of a type of spiritual dysfunction. And good people, myself included, if we are not, if we get lazy, we fall into spiritual dysfunction. What is that shown by? We have a form of this thing. We have a form of godliness. We have a style. It may be how we do life. It may be who our friends are. We have a form, but we're not pursuing the power of real, testimonial, practical life change. We are hearers of the word, but we are not doers of the word. And you will know this because you will have a spiritual double standard in your life. You'll shout on Sundays and have moral problems the rest six days of the week. I'm just bringing real world, just real world right here. It's true about me too. I'll be able to have a form of godliness on Sunday, but I'll have uh, integrity problems Monday through Saturday. I'll claim to be religious. I may even listen to a lot of religious music, but then I'll find ways to cheat. I'll find ways to lie. I'll find ways to trade character for uh, reputation. To keep my reputation, I don't need someone else to assassinate my character. I assassinate my own character by living a lie. This is spiritual dysfunction. And you guys know, a lot of times when I preach, I am encouraging. I am uplifting. I tell you how much God loves you. I tell you how you are anointed. You guys know I do that. But you cannot hold me where the only message I have to give to you is a challenge to think about how cool you are spiritually. You need to hear this kind of preaching too where we need to be spiritual people of spiritual integrity. We need our life to be a witness before the Lord. It's not okay to have a form of godliness and then have struggles with the flesh all the rest of the time and not even hardly put up a fight. And so just uh, this is not me waking up with a bad mood. This is not me taking it out on you. This is about me giving an answer to God and challenging you and saying altars matter. It's me challenging you that says and saying, yes, times are tough, but you said you were going to be a worshiper, and a worshiper can't just worship when things are good. A worshiper has to say, in everything, Give him thanks. 
And you had to let, you had to let me. You had to let me remind you the gifts were not for your entertainment. The calling was not so you could be the coolest kid on the pew. The calling of God was because you had been contextually placed by God in a situation, context, a family, a neighborhood, a place of employment for a spiritual reason. See the city that God wants to save. Yes. Amen. All right, so let's talk about, I'm going to try to help, help, help you, and this will all sound um, potentially negative. I don't want to sound negative. Um, I want to sound helpful, okay? <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not trying to sound negative. You guys hear me preach a lot. I am not, not a super negative person. I have a little bit like everybody else, but I'm not super negative. Um, I, however, I want to be helpful. And sometimes in order to be helpful, I have to beat you about the head, neck, and shoulders with the truth. Can I have an amen from this group over here? All right. So I'm telling you right now, I love you. I stinking loves you. I'll kiss you on both cheeks after church. But I, you should know that after I preach, I have a little bit of bad breath. It's not just me. Everybody who preaches, they have a little bit of bad breath when they're done. But I want you to know I still have double kisses for you after church, okay? Well, for some of you. Some of you ain't kissing. That's just a bridge too far. But um, <laughs> we can get trapped in spiritual dysfunction. And the simplest way I know to help people understand the trap of spiritual dysfunction is to point out to you the message of two opposing kingdoms. God's kingdom wants to save you with the truth. Now, the truth can sometimes feel harsh, but it's a gift. Whereas the kingdom of darkness wants to soothe you with a lie. The kingdom of God wants to challenge you with the truth, and the kingdom of darkness wants to soothe you with a lie. And it is in our nature to choose the lie when it soothes us and hide from the truth when it challenges us. And so uh, I want to very quickly point out to you that if the Lord has done a work for us that we could not do, but placed us intentionally in the context of work we could do, and that work we do, made possible by Him, testifies of his work, his heart, and his kingdom, the only way that that can happen in us is if we are continually being made more and more like him. And the experience of that feels like building and rebuilding, building and rebuilding. It feels like putting altars back together. It feels like choosing to be a worshiper. It, it feels like seeing the city that God wants to save. Uh, we fall into dysfunction when we soothe ourselves with a lie. And the most dangerous lies we tell are the lies we tell ourselves. The most dangerous lies in our life are not what people told us, not even people close to us. That's not the most dangerous lies in your life. Um, the most dangerous lies in your life are the lies you tell yourself, I tell myself. So why do we lie to ourselves? We lie to ourselves the same, for the same reason that the kingdom of darkness lies to us. Um, rather than letting God be our covering, we cover with a lie. 
rather than letting God make sacrifice and cover our sinful nakedness, we take leaves of our own effort and cover with a lie. Uh, it's us finding our own grace. Yeah. Uh, and so, why do we lie to ourselves? Because lies are how we cope when we don't want to be changed. I'm going to say it again. I love you. I'll kiss you on both cheeks after church. Lies are how we cope when we don't want to change. We cope with pain. We cope with pride. We cope with fear. We cope with laziness. We cope with stubbornness. We cope with trauma by telling ourselves a lie. Sorry. Psalms 19 and 12. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sins. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What do we do when we are trapped in a dysfunctional lie? Um, well, I'll tell you, like uh, Bill Brock said, the first law of holes is if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Uh, the curse of believing a lie is that when the lie comes to its end, we don't suddenly see the truth. We choose another lie to do what the first lie could not do for us. And so uh, there is unhap un unhealthy, dysfunctional responses to facing the truth. Now remember, the truth will challenge you. The truth will challenge you. And how you handle the truth uh, will be very much uh, indication on whether or not you were ready for the truth you were given. The truth is always a gift, but it is the kind of gift that sometimes hurts. Uh, but it is a gift. And so when we are faced with the truth, and for whatever reason, whether in prayer, that's one of the most common ways for the truth to face you. If you are not praying, I'm not surprised you're not feeling much conviction. <laughs> um, people who don't pray, they do not have a spiritual mirror to see the weakness of their own soul. Prayer should humble you. And you say, well, I pray and I don't notice that. Well, I want you to know you probably praying, pushing your prayers uh, toward yourself and not toward God. Because the first step of prayer is to make God holy and remind yourself that you need mercy. Our Father, which art in heaven, uh, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Not my kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Not my will be done on earth where I am as it is in heaven. You talk about the prayer leading you to contentment. Give us this day. You talk about casting your cares upon the Lord. Daily bread and forgive me this dirty sinner down here. Yes. 
And not just because I am uh, so good that I asked, but I need to be forgiven uh, from what I've done to you, and uh, I need to forgive the people who have done things to me like I've done to you. This is a prayer of humility. This is a prayer of humbling yourself, not walking around talking about give this one and give that one and give the other. No, this is the humbling of self. Remember, self is the enemy you fight before you ever get to Lucifer. Amen. Two battles. One of them is inside, flesh and spirit. Don't you wish you could rebuke the devil and it fix your addiction problems? <laughs> Let me tell you what the devil does with that. He uses that as leverage to take you beyond where you would ever go. But the weakness was in here. It was a battle of flesh against spirit. If I can win over the battle within, now I have a chance to make a difference in the battle that is without. The devil isn't afraid of a church where everyone is barely making it. Why? Zero influence. All right. I've got, uh, I'm, I'm, okay, Bill Brock. Let me go back to him. The first law of holes. If you're in a hole, stop digging. When you face the truth, prayer will help you see the truth. Spiritual mentors will help you see the truth. And finally, real spiritual past, a pastorate, uh, having a real spiritual pastor will help you see the truth. Please don't call me your pastor, and then when I help you see the truth, you get mad and quit the church. You have, li- you have given me a lying title for lo these many years. If you do that, you see what I'm saying? The job of spiritual leadership is to help us see, open our eyes. Now, I am try to be nice with it. I try to be kind with it. Sometimes I succeed more than others. True story. But I want you to know that this is the role of prayer. It's also the role of fasting, discipline of self. It is the role of spiritual mentors. It is the role of brothers and sisters. That's why we confess one to another. We become accountable one to another. And finally, that is the role of a real pastor. I want to be friendly with you. I want to like you. I I try to, every time I see you, if the Lord helps me to in some way show the affection I feel to you. And it's just a function of my personality, how I try to do that. Some of you may like it, some of you may not, but it's in my desire to consistently show you the affection I feel for you when I see you. But that's not enough. That doesn't make me your pastor. What makes me your pastor is is if you can let me help you see a blind spot and you receive it with a thank you. Someone quit coming to church recently because they, they hadn't been in a very, very long time. And, um, and when they came, they called me up and they just dressed the church down. It was this was wrong with it, that was wrong with it. They just dressed it down. And um, I was, I was in an, I, it wasn't the best time for me. I probably should have kicked them over to somebody who loved them like Pastor Don. Um, I was too busy at that moment and my love was running short. Y'all pray for me. I need to make heaven my home. Um, uh, that's a true story. And finally, I said, look, you know, am I your pastor? Am I really your pastor? And uh, they, I'm speaking in the plural, said, uh, yes, you are my pastor. I said, okay, well, let's see, because we'll know after this, all right? Um, first of all, you haven't been here for weeks, and the first thing you did when you come is you call me and tell me everything that's wrong. Do you see how this is not ideal? Do you see how this is not ideal? 
You, you, you haven't even been here, which is okay. I get, I understand. But the first time you come, you can't look around and just trash everything and everybody. That, 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 <laughs> can you see the problem with this? Well, they decided to quit the church, which let me knew what I was suspecting. They were not able to receive me as a helpmate to truth. They just saw me as the guy they maybe liked or didn't like. Um, I, I am not the type of personality where I need to take authority over people. I think if you know human nature very much, you know I'm not that guy who it, tries to take a lot of authority over people. I have guys I know, pastors I know, who you can't buy a car in the church without getting pastoral approval. That is not a true story. Um, that, that, that is not how we will ever operate around here. It's not who I am. They can do it if they want to do it. They, and the good news is they have a master who will sort them out on what they did. They don't need me. I just wanted you to say I'm not that kind of pastor. But if I can't even help you see the truth, do you see what I'm saying? And so um, let me get into these uh, dysfunctions, and I'm trying to wrap this up, um, but it's in my spirit, and I'm making uh, uh, open appeal to all of you to understand what I am trying to say. How do people respond when they're confronted with the truth? Now, the truth was always meant to challenge them. It was always meant to challenge them. It was always meant to challenge them. It's like me asking my wife if she thought I preached good. If I don't want to know, I don't need to ask. That's funny. True story, y'all. Hashtag pray for Nate. Um, okay, truth, truth always challenges us, right? It always challenges us, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because when truth compliments you, it will be true. Don't choose a lie to soothe you when the truth could have blessed you with vision. Four unhealthy responses. Uh, let's say I'm trapped in a lie. I'll make it personal. That way you won't think I'm judgmental. Um, let's say I'm trapped in a lie. The truth comes and challenges me. The first dysfunction that can keep me and limit me and hinder me spiritually uh, is to double down on the, on, the, on the lie, to double down. And what I mean by that is the truth comes and says this, and I reject it and say, that's not true. Uh, why is this so dangerous? Because now I am not simply a blind man or woman. I am an enemy of truth. Do you see? I'm no longer deceived. I am an enemy of truth. I double down on the lie. The second dysfunction that I uh, can slip into if I'm not careful is the truth challenges me and uh, I blame others. The, that sounds like this. Even if it's true, it's not my fault. The third dysfunction, spiritual and uh, in every other arena of our life, relationship, personality, family, um, the third dysfunction is this, is I am challenged by the truth, and rather than face it, I declare defeat, and I say, I did the best I could, when honestly, I know I didn't really even try, not in any organized, systematic way. I just gave up. So here we are. I declare defeat in the face of truth. 
And I say I did the best I could when the Lord knows, and I know I didn't even really try. It was just easier to wash my hands of the gift that truth had to give me. Number four, the fourth great dysfunction that is always there for children of the lie is this. I accept it, or at least I appear to, but I manage the pain with another lie, which is I am unrealistic or unserious about my plans to change. And so what I'm really doing is trying to impress the people who see me by posing how I'm going to change when the plan is not even realistic and it is unserious. So now I went from being deceived to being a poser. I traded one lie for another. Um, when we are challenged by truth, we have to really go to prayer on how do I make changes. It's not as simple as writing down, you know, uh, a list of unreasonable things. I'm all for writing things down. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But it's not as simple as just writing down some unreasonable list to where you're going to go from not exercising to running eight miles before breakfast. That's, that, that, that is not realistic. And because it's so unrealistic, let me say it in a way, hopefully, that breaks through. It's unserious. Right. Come on. You, you couldn't do that. First of all, your knees won't let you do that. <laughs> a serious effort to change is very much brought into being by somebody who decides to build a tower, and then they count the costs of that tower. Let me tell you what that looks like for me. I have to do what I call um, habit connection. Let's say something simple that's just a simple thing. Let's say uh, I want to, I feel like I want to make some change in my life. I ask myself what I know I'm already doing every day. I know I'm already doing it every day. I'm not having to make myself do it every day. It's just what I do. For example, a shower. I don't have to make myself take a shower every day. If I get dirty, I crave a shower. I want to feel clean. And if you don't feel that way, let me know because I want to move to another pew. <laughs> so this is habit connection. I dig something I know I'm going to do, and I connect to that thing I know I'm going to do. I connect it to something I've decided I want to do. Yeah. All right. All right. I have hitched a good horse with a bad one. I wanted to make a marriage joke there so bad, but I <laughs> decided not to. Um, uh, I guess I did in a roundabout way, but this way I don't get in trouble for it, right? <laughs> I want you to see by saying, I will not eat breakfast if I haven't prayed. I'm going to pray over my food really fast. <laughs> Lord, bless this uh, omelet I'm about to eat. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, what have I just given you? I've given you an example of a serious plan that's not unrealistic. I'm not talking about every morning at 6 a.m. I'm going to have a conference three-hour intercession plan with Sister Venice. That's what I need to do, but that's not realistic. 
You see what I'm saying? I am taking it seriously. So four dysfunctional responses that keeps us trapped as children of the lie. First, we reject the truth and double down on the lie. Second, we blame others. Even if it's true, it's not our fault. Third, we are exhausted with trying and we just declare defeat in the face of the truth that has been given us. Or number four, we accept it but then create a pretend plan, opposing plan that did not count the costs and was unrealistic in change. Now, four, as our musicians come, remember, I'm not trying to be negative, I'm trying to be helpful, okay? Four healthy responses. Remember, this is what real Christianity feels like. It feels like rebuilding altars. It feels like choosing a life of worship. It feels like seeing the city that God wants to save. That's what real Christianity feels like. Uh, And so uh, four healthy responses to truth. I acknowledge that the will of the Lord, we read several scriptures, is to make me more and more like Jesus. Can I have a big amen? I acknowledge that he is working on me. I acknowledge I'm not where I was. I'm not who I was. But day after day, he is more and more transforming me into the image of his son. So the truth will challenge me. It'll happen in prayer. It'll happen in fasting. It'll happen with spiritual brothers and sisters. It will happen with spiritual mentors and pastors. The truth is going to challenge me. And these are four healthy responses to truth. The first one is this. Accept the truth and the challenge of it. Sometimes the pain of it. Sometimes the uh, self-loathing of it. The self-disappointment of it. Accept it and remind yourself that in spite of who you actually are, not who you pretend to be, who you actually are, God loves you. This is super healthy right here. The truth is I need to do better in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 12.4. I need to do better in all these areas, do you see? But in the meantime, God loves me and God is committed to me. And he knew I needed this work before he went to Calvary for me. But he went to Calvary anyway that he might transform me. And his mercy is new this morning. And it's new for me to try again. This is a healthy response in the face of truth. So if any of you have been challenged, if you've been challenged in a moral failing of your life, uh, you don't need to let the shame you feel be the final emotion. You need to have a healthy response, and you need to say, God knew I was going to be dumb before I was dumb, and he decided to love dumb people, and Lord, I just want to praise you today because I'm in the dumb section of the church, but I'm not quitting the church. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? The second healthy response, this is how you break the curse of the lie in your life. This is how you stop being a child of the lie and how you receive the joy of the challenge of truth. And if you will not receive, then you're not a son of God because he chastens all those he loves. He chastens you and me. And you need more chastening than me, but other than that, we both have to receive this. 
I accept the truth, and I acknowledge that even if all of it wasn't my fault, have you ever noticed how many sins require more than one person? I didn't hear any laughter over here, so I think that's because there's a lot of guilt on this side of the church over here. I accept the truth. I'm challenged by the truth. I receive the chastening of the Lord. And then, even if it wasn't all my fault, the only way for me to change is to take responsibility. This is how I am changed by the truth. Even if it wasn't all my fault, the only way I'm going to change is if I say it with me, take responsibility. Not everything in your life do you have control over. There's a lot of things in your life that you only have influence on. But whether or not you have control or influence, the path to change and rebuilding is to take responsibility. Paul does this when he writes the church at Thessalonica where, he, where, where uh, he challenges them and you can see his challenge of them and they have to take responsibility. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse number 11, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. That's the wrong kind of busy. So when I tell you the wrong kind of busy, you'll know what I'm talking about. Not busy doing good, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Um, I want you to notice this. Busy bodies is one of those sins that you need someone else to commit. You have to be all in everybody else's business. Well, have you heard and did you know? Oh, we're going to pray for them. But first, tell me all the details and then we'll pray together. <laughs> they did what? Oh, my word. That happened when? Right after the service? Jesus, take the wheel. This is awful. Now, let's pray. <laughs> Stop it, Paul says. Accept the truth, take responsibility. Um, number three, accept the challenge of the truth and confess your struggle to God. Don't be quiet about your struggle. Don't be quiet about your struggle. Proverbs 28 and 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Face the truth. Let's just say you have an integrity problem. You need to confess that to the Lord. You need to find people, brothers and uh, brothers, sisters, you might better be careful on this one, guys. Uh, you might want to find pastoral mentoring relationships. Confess. Tell them what you're working on. There's no accountability as long as it's a secret. But that's the way some people like it. Number four. Accept the truth, the challenge of the truth, and commit to a realistic plan 
to make changes in your life and heart. Some examples of a realistic plan. I gave you a little bit of that earlier, but I'm all for writing down what you're trying to change, what you know hasn't worked, and what you're trying next. I'm all for writing it down. I believe something powerful happens when you write it down. We wouldn't have a Bible today if someone hadn't written it down. I'm all for writing it down. That is a good thing. But you need to consider what you're trying to do, and you need to create a plan that sets you up for small successes, not huge failures. You need to create a plan that sets you up for small successes, not huge failures. Make a commitment to a realistic plan. Pray about it every day, every day, every day. That what you wrote down, put it in your Bible, read your Bible, identify your stress points. The worst decisions come on the wrong side of your stress triggers. Come on now. And lastly, pray to God to give you insight into your own personality patterns. You have patterns. You have certain times where you're weak. You have certain times where you're prone to, you know, error, shall we say. Uh, This is what it means to receive chastening from the Lord. And rather than being a child of the lie and becoming the enemy of truth, you humble yourself and you say, it's me who needs work, oh God. I need work. I need work. I need to be changed. I need to be made more and more in your image, oh God. Left to my own devices, I'll be short-tempered, I'll be cruel, I'll be ugly, and I'll still think I'm religious because that's the way of the flesh. I just have wrong religion, not right religion. But the truth will challenge me, and I will be humbled by that challenge, and I will be changed to be more and more like you. You are my hope. You are my joy. You are my everything. And because of what you have done for me at Calvary, it behooves me by the mercies of God to present myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you, which in light of what you have done for me is just the reasonable service of my life to you. My brother, my sister, serving God is going to feel like this. You go to an altar. You notice it has a wear wear and tear in it. And you say, I'm not content with a broken down altar. I'm rebuilding this altar. Serving God is going to feel a lot like this. I trust God, but I'm really worried about my career. Wait a minute. I'm not just another career guy. I'm a worshiper. So God, I want to praise you right now in the middle of my fear because you are my provider. My career is not my provider. Oh God, you you are my provider. I'm choosing today to be a worshiper. I am choosing to lift up your greatness, not obsess on my limitation. I choose it. I build this. And finally, there's a city that God wants to build. 
There's a work of God that must be done. There is gates that need to be hung on their hinges. There is a people that needs a house of a temple gathering place. I am willing to go. Yeah, I'm doing okay where I am. Yeah, I'm doing quite well. Someone else could do it, but God, I moved in my spirit. I see the city that you want to save. Serving God is going to feel like consecration as a choice, worship as a choice, and mission as a choice. Standing with me all across the house. Let's pray together right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're calling upon you. We need the touch of your spirit in our lives. Lord, I have done as good a job as I can do to challenge, uh, to put a, a, a resounding call for truth and its life-changing effects on our heart to be implemented here in this community we call First Church. Oh God, we want to be people of truth. We want to be people who are not simply looking for a way to cover over our weakness, but we are humbling self and we are choosing you. Lord God, we're not just making it, but we are able to make a difference in the larger spiritual conflict that exists. Oh God, every strong believer in this house, let them hear this challenge of the Spirit and be changed by it. Lord, every young believer in this house, let them gain wisdom today at this continual discipline of choosing you, of putting you first, of being a worshiper, of committing to the call, of taking our gifts, our abilities, our fishes and loaves, and giving them to you for spiritual multiplication. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. If I've challenged you here today and you're willing and comfortable, step out of the chair you're in. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.